and, and uh, that our church people also hear from heaven and do what the Lord calls them to do. And uh, amen. So I want to honor again our speakers, Abner Suarez, Wendell McGowan, and I want to honor Harold Everly. I'm so excited about tonight. They're all going to impart to us. Are you ready for tonight? Who was here the first session with Abner? Did you love that? Who was here Saturday morning with Wendell? I, I think I got saved with a new fire Saturday morning. And I laughed so hard. Wendell, you're hilarious. You have no idea. Uh, someone taught me one time the Hebrew word for prophesize to be bold and hilarious. And you were prophesying the whole time. I mean, I was cracking up. And you are a cowboy too. You're crazy. We need to go shooting out in the desert and have some fun. Let's do it. Yeah. So, but this morning, who here is ready to receive the word of the Lord and get your theology bulldozed so God can reframe it and build on a better foundation? I want you to stand with me in honor and welcome the man of God, Harold Everly. Come on. Hallelujah. Okay, let's go for it. Hey, everybody. It's going to be fun next time to come back and see you in your new building. What a cool idea. Sounds like things are moving ahead, huh? I want to redirect us, uh, this session this to me, uh, more towards our theme, love, let it explode across this region. Um, so um, if you've got a scripture with you, you can open up to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't, I'm just going to read two verses is all we're going for this time. Um, i just just really excited to be here. It's been good. It's been good falling more in love with you guys. Um, I was over in a church in Southern California, this is about almost a year ago, and it was a real multicultural church, which is my love, okay, because most of the places I go in other countries, I'm the minority, you know, and I like being that, you know, I like being the only white, bald head in the crowd within 200 miles, so I mean, that's just what I like, go way out in there in Congo, and it's just who I'm created to be. Well, a real multiracial church over there, and the pastor was uh, joking about how people like to think of Jesus in their own culture. And they actually, when they read the scripture, think that he is one of them. And, you know, Jesus was not white. I hope you know that, okay? You know, you got to wake up to that. You, you know, us crackers, he's not one, okay? <laughs> so people like to relate, though, in their own culture. And he was joking about it, saying, you know, there's people who actually want to prove from the Bible that Jesus was of their culture. And this is kind of, I'm implementing, you know, adding some of my own here. But he was saying, well, first of all, there was Hispanics in his church, and they were trying to argue that Jesus was of their culture, and they could prove it biblically. And the first thing they did is they say, well, look, his name's Jesus. Has to be. And number two, the end of the book, fire comes out of his mouth. He loves habaneros. He has to be. It's that simple. And then the black brothers were saying, no, Jesus, he's black. We know he's black. First of all, he called everybody my brother. Second of all, he got a, it was an unfair trial. He had to be black. <laughs> had to be, you know? And then you know, so the Jews were saying, no, we know he's Jewish. He had to be Jewish. So wait a minute, how do you know that? Well, first of all, he was about his father's business, so he had to be Jewish. Number two, his mother thought her son was the son of God. Had to be Jewish. <laughs> and then there was another group. They were, I was just thinking for a pastor, pastor's Filipinos. They said, I'm just thinking now, Filipino. Listen, you know, the Filipinos were arguing he had to be Filipino because he was the best fighter in the world. <laughs> and then there was, you know, some whites from, some whites were saying, no, he's a white from Southern California. We know it. Because he had long hair, wore sandals. 
and he started a new religion. <laughs> Had to be. Uh, one more I think of. Um, he said, no, Jesus was a woman. We know that. Biblically, we can prove it. First of all, he hung around a group of guys trying to talk to them. They just couldn't seem to get it. Okay? <laughs> and number two, even after he died, he had to get back up, so he had so much to do. <laughs> had to be a woman. It's because there's the proof. Uh, probably none of that's true, but I like it. It's pretty fun. I was um, looking here in Philippians chapter 1 because I said I want to talk about this love, and I want to bring it back to the heart. You remember last night when I, uh, those of you are here, I mentioned how when Linda and I, my wife and I, we married 34 years, but when we were dating, um, it took me a while to commit. I was one of those holdout guys. No, I ain't giving in to this, you know, because I wouldn't say those words, I love you, because when a guy says those words and means it from his heart, it's over. Come on, it's just, there you go, your whole life, it just happened one day. Here I am 34 years later, happily married to this woman, and I kept up the wall. No, you're precious, you're wonderful, but I'm not saying those words. But when the day said, and I came, I love you, I let down the wall and I let her in. From that day forward, she had more access to my heart. She had, you know, somehow a deep hold within here where she knew she could influence me, from that point forward, we become one from that day on. And that's just how it is. You and I in our culture, in the Western culture, we don't value the heart the way the Bible is. The, the Bible comes from a culture that sees the heart as the control center of our being. Western society thinks our brain is the control center of our being. Western society, which we have been raised in, um, that's why we train our children through 12 years of school, and you go to college, and you go to more than that, because we think the more that you put in here, the more successful they'll be. And that's foreign to the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is, no, your heart is what determines your success in life, how you can govern your heart. And that's why scriptures like in Proverbs says, he who rules his heart is greater than he who rules a city. You can rule your heart. You can govern it, decide where it orients, who it opens to, who you close it off to. If you have charge of your heart, that will determine the success in life. And until you're even exposed to that view, you can't quite see the truth of it. But the more you, you relate to that and you start seeing how people's lives are either destroyed or become victorious because of their heart, you realize how profound that is. Like the, the value of my ministry will be determined by my ability to rule my heart. You know, it's, it's not how much I know, but ultimately, if I were to open my heart up to the wrong place, it could destroy my ministry. I could lose it real quickly. On the other hand, if I did not open my heart up to love people, there would be no place for my ministry. If I was not someone who somehow God taught me how to love people and I didn't grow up that way, God had to break me and make me learn how to love people. You know, now I, you know, I am saturated. It's my life uh, in the church. I just love the church. It's who I am. Now, but if I was not able to do that, I would never have a ministry. It's the heart that decides. And it's the same thing in every area of life. If you want to be a good business person, well, you can't hate everybody else there in the business world. You can't hate the customer. You've got to somehow open up your heart or somehow you will just never have an open communication. And you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 12? He talks about love, that unless you love, you're a noisy, gong, clanging symbol. If I don't love people, my words don't go into their hearts. I'm just a noisy gong to them. But if I really love people, somehow they hear what I'm saying. And people can tell whether you have love in your heart or not or whether you're just pretending. It's a very easy thing to pick up in individuals' lives. Um, 
Dr. Cho has the world's largest churches, and he was uh, with a pastor friend that I know up in Seattle, Washington. And this pastor has a large church up there, and he was relaying what Dr. Cho said to him once. Dr. Cho was meeting with him, and he asked the pastor, how many medical doctors do you have in your church? And the pastor that I know, he said, none. And his church had about 4,000 people at the time, no medical doctors. And Dr. Cho looked at him and said, it's your fault. Then he just walked away. And the pastor said, what do you mean it's my fault? He chased him down. What do you mean it's my fault? Now, I'm trying to recall the conversation, saying as best I can repeat it to you. But he, he said, the reason no doctors come to your church is because you have a judgment in your heart against doctors. You've been so into the faith, healing, ministry so much that you've actually gone to the other extreme, and you now don't even like doctors. And you've gone to that extreme. And, and people can feel, as soon as they step across the threshold of your church, they can feel whether they're welcome or not. Might not be conscious, but they can feel whether they're loved there or not. So whatever's in your heart, that establishes who will come for your ministry. And if there's not just doctors, if there's a certain group of people that you have a judgment against, a culture, a social class, uh, you know, certain, you know, men to be handicapped people, you know, whatever it is, anything in your heart that you have a judgment, somehow those people, when they're present, just won't feel like this is where I belong. They can't explain it. It's just something they know. I'm not welcome here. And so this uh, Dr. Cho, when he was addressing this pastor, the pastor realized and he repented. And he cried out, God, I'm sorry. I mean, now there's several dozen ch- doctors in his, in his church. What happened, he had to open up his heart. Well, when I was taught that, that really challenged me because in my ministry, I had seen that I'd always wanted to influence politicians, political leaders, but I never could. I'd never get close to them. And, I, and then I realized I've got to judge my heart against politicians. Deep in my heart, I've hated politicians. I'm sorry, it's just where I was. I used to enjoy jokes, things like, how can you be a politician and be, still be a Christian? You know, things like that I would allow myself to come into agreement with, which would put up my, hall, my wall against them. Well, when I was pointed this out, you know, Dr. Cho and this pastor exchange, it realized in, in, real, realized in me that I have a judgment in your heart against them, and so I've got to repent. And it was a Saturday, and I was repenting, and I just, God, I'm sorry. I've known that you want me to influence political leaders, but I see why I can't get near them. I don't like them. And so here I repented, and I cried out to God. I tried to get God's view of who they are, that God loves them, and God wants to use their gifts and their abilities to bring his will into the earth. And I was trying to reform my thoughts and open up my heart to see them the way God sees them. And that was on a Saturday. It was the next day I was flying to the Philippines, and it was one of my ministry trips over there. I flew the Philippines, landed in Manila, the capital, but we got stuck at the airport because our next flight was down to a little island where we minister, but there was a typhoon, so the airplane wasn't going that so we're stuck at the airport and I had a team with me and one of the ladies on the team knew somebody in the Philippines so she called him up say hey we're stuck at the airport can you come get us till we can fly south and so this lady came picked us up and took us to eat lunch well where she took us for lunch it was where the senate of the Philippines was having lunch that day so the day after I repented I was having lunch with the the legislature of the Philippines the day after I repented I mean that was like a huge lord this stuff works all of a sudden, doors opened up the day after. Well, from there, I went and ministered in Germany, and I was ministering in some churches, but some political leaders, they all came to the meetings to get prophecy over for their country and to get over their personal lives. Ever since that day I repented, I've been able, 
God's opened up doors for me to talk to political leaders. But it was not until my heart changed. Everything pivots right from here. Who you love is who you'll be able to minister to. I find that out in the countries I go to. Usually on my first visit to a country, um, you know, I'm still just getting to know the people. But usually on my flight home, I'm thinking about the people's needs, and I, I start falling in love with them. And, you know, I always realize it's on the second trip to a country where I feel like I love these people, and they listen to me. I'm more effective on the second visit. Because something happened in my heart. My heart opened up for these people. It's the same way if you love mentally handicapped people, you can minister to mentally. You love children, you can minister to children. You, you love, you know, any group of people, that's who you can pour out and God will work through you. And, and, of course, God can do whatever he wants, but he chooses to flow through an open heart. And if your heart is not open to a people, somehow that was a restriction of his flow, and they do not sense God in you. And even if they don't call it God, it's, it's love. God is love, and if we want it to flow through us, we've got to open up our heart. And so I, I, I want to live a life where my heart is more and more in love with all people. And, and being in all these countries, you know, I get a lot. One, I think my, my busiest year was in 22 countries one year. I mean, when you're in so many countries every year, you, you just you learn to love the cultures, and it's such a rich... And I actually come back to my town, and I don't know how to say this. Maybe I shouldn't say it. Crackers are real boring. I, I'm telling you. White people are the most boring people on earth. I just come to realize that, okay? Now, I'm one of you, but, but we are a boring people. When you start coming across the cultures of the world, you suddenly realize there is such incredible creativity God had. And if they're creating God's image... How much more that I got to be open to this thing. So I'm talking about open up our heart, and I use that as an example, but I'm headed somewhere here because there's some specific areas I want us to think about opening our hearts open because you have to love your community to reach your community. The body of Christ as a whole tends to have a judgment against non-Christians. We tend to think non-Christians are evil people. Well, ultimately, you cannot love who you think is evil. You can pity them. You can feel sorry for them. But if deep in your heart they think, you know, they can sense your lack of love, they're not going to come near you. You can't get hear them. Your words are a noisy, gong, and clanging symbol to them. But unless you love your neighbor, they can't hear your words. But if in your heart you even have a, a way of thinking that says, no, they're evil, you actually project it on God and thinks God hates them. Because you mold your image of God after how you think God should act, how you act. And in reality, God has so much more love than we can possibly imagine. And so, God, I want to think like you think. I want to love the way you love. And what will that change in my life? Well, somehow people will be able to hear. I, I have a special love for, you know, pastors because I spend so much time with leaders. You know, and because of that, God allows me, you know, to flow through. And he gives me words to say. He helps me say the things that he wants to say to them. So who you love does open up your heart for the flow of God through you. And you realize, you know, somebody that doesn't feel comfortable around you, you got to look in your own heart. Am I the cause of this thing? Is this where this is coming from in here? Well, here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is a verse that we've often heard, and we quote it often, for it says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, we hear that. If you've been around Christianity very long, Christians like to quote it. They like to reassure themselves and reassure others, God's at work in you. He'll never quit. If he started, he's going to keep on working in you. And it's good to use that verse that way. But the next verse 
tells us why Paul was confident that God was at work in these Philippian Christians. The next verse, it says here, verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Okay, why was Paul confident God was at work in the Philippians? Why was he confident he was working the Filipinos? Okay, that's another one I could have used here sometimes. Just thinking, man, proof that Jesus comes from here. No, the Philippians. I'm going to add that one next time. Okay, God, why is he confident that God's at work in the the Philippians? Because you're in my heart. There was a direct connection that Paul's aware of that you are in my heart, therefore I know God's at work in you. That's why. This connection is profound. And now we have to get back to escaping our mental Western mind, thinking the mind controls the world, and think biblically, no, my heart opens up, and Jesus flows through my heart. If I love something, I'm allowing Jesus, his love, to flow toward them. Jesus and me are loving them. God's at work in them. So whatever you hold in your heart, you can be confident God's at work in them. Parents love their kids. If you love your kids, you can be confident God's at work in them. But you know, there are times when, without realizing it, we can let something slip out of our heart. We, we can, for example, believe for our children. And mothers are especially tenacious for holding for their kids. They're good no matter what. They believe, you know, mom loves whatever. But you know, there's sometimes when, when your child can maybe fall and backslide and get rebellious, and you can be tempted to give up faith. Thoughts can start going through your head. And you can say, oh, my child's never going to make it. They're just rebellious. They're just rebellious. Now, as long as those thoughts are in your head, they're still not in your heart. Again, Western people have a hard time understanding that. Like, if I'm trying to talk to a young man who can't control his eyes, he looks at every beautiful woman. You know, with a Western mind, they think they have to solve it by controlling their eyes. You will never solve the problem by controlling your eyes. You have to control your heart. You make a decision... The, to, to turn down that heart and the eyes will follow. They will stop doing that. Uh, adopting it to my own life. I, I shared you know, in, in other meetings with you and even in this morning, I was sharing how my background, I lived in the country, raised on the farm, um, and I got my degree in wildlife management to be a wildlife biologist. Well, I, I was, my life was into hunting. Now, that's culturally not acceptable in a lot of parts of the world today. So I'm even careful how I share that kind of stuff. You know, I... It's been 27 years since I've had time to do all that because I've just been so busy in what I do. Um, But I went to college for five years, you know, living out, doing everything I could out there. I lived off the land before I went to college for a time. But then when I went to college, I paid my way for college, and sometimes this isn't acceptable, by killing coyotes. Okay, that was my job. Um, In Montana, they have to remove at least 2,000 coyotes a year just to sustain the population. Okay, so... I don't, I don't want to rationalize or anything because a lot of you, it's such a foreign world. They just tell you, that's the world I was in. I'm not there today, but that's the world I was in. I loved hunting coyotes. I paid my way through college hunting coyotes. Okay? That's just who I was. I thought, breathed, and slept, and I smelled like coyotes. Whoa. I don't pick up, you know, at my, my guns. and I, I always carried a dead skunk with me, Okay? Now, that, I know a lot of you can't relate to that, but I always had a dead skunk with me because the smell is good. You cut out the rear end, and you got the, the two sacks that squirt out the juice. And that juice is great for getting coyotes, okay? They can't smell you when you're covered with it. It doesn't do very good when you're sitting in class, though. But, all, but, all, but you understand, 
I'm in a university where everybody else is into wildlife management. We're all weirdos, okay? We're all, we all stink, okay? That's just who we are. We have our stories, okay? Now, okay, I was addicted to coyotes because when you're out there day after day longing to see and looking, it's the same thing as a slot machine. You are focused to try to get something, and you just keep on cranking, cranking, and every now and then you win. You get a reward. Every now and then, you get the shot. You, you get a certain place where you can get a certain dominion in a certain field. The more you have aimed your heart and wanted it, wanted it, wanted it, you can attain a place where there's a certain sense of dominion. Kyle's was my area. Okay. Now, so I got out of college. Okay, it's been 34 years since I've been out of college, but that's what I did back in college. When I got out of college, I still had this coyote addiction. You say, what's this guy? He's crazy. I'm driving around preaching. I'm dangerous driving because I'm always looking for coyotes. As soon as I'm out of town, I'm looking for coyotes, okay? For the first four years on the road out preaching, every time I'm driving across country, coyotes, coyotes, and I can see them where nobody else sees them. It's just like, yeah, and I'm dangerous. I can go right off the road after a coyote, okay? Just, you know, my wife didn't like to drive with me in those days. You never know when I'm going to veer off the road. When your heart gets longing for something, lusting, loving, whatever combination it is within you, there forms within you a heart attachment to that thing, and it controls your mental facilities and your eyes. Some people, that's why they can get addicted to pornography or get addicted to gambling, because they've allowed their heart to attach to it. And it's not really their minds that needs to control, it's their heart. And if they would learn how to guard their heart and rechange it, redirect it, then the rest of their life will follow down that road. And when we try to get somebody free, we have to deal with the heart, not with the outer behavior. Well, the heart is that powerful. And so you learn, okay, the person who rules their heart is greater than he who rules the city. Well, I'm going to choose that I'm going to love people. Well, I got into, I was pastoring after college, I didn't go into wildlife management. I went to a seminary. Then we started pastoring for six years. During my six years of pastoring, I loved what I did. We were, our church was blessed. But then at the end of it, I went on the road traveling and minister. I, I was desperate at that time in my life to see God do something big. I wanted to see God not just touch my little church, but I got bored. God, there, there's you know, 80% of the humanity is outside the walls of the church. God, we've got to reach our, our country. God, we've got to. And church just seemed like it was too restrictive. And I came to that place where, God, there's got to be more. And I dedicated myself to three months of prayer. The last three months of my pastorate, I would go up to this mountain cabin. And I just prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. I fasted. You know, and that's when I would say, fast until your belly bit me your backbone pay the price come on do it <laughs> okay i was that kind of a person okay and I, I know i've always been a little bit extreme okay but that's who i was well at the end of my three months of prayer my life was just fixed god i'm gonna go change the world <laughs> i had a visitation from god i i, I saw this vision at the end of three months of prayer i saw the church rise in victory power and glory before the return of jesus changed my whole life I saw the fivefold ministering function. I saw what the church was going to look like with healings and miracles. Everything changed in my life. I went back, told my wife what I saw on the mountain. I came back, you know, I, the next Sunday, I gave my church to my associate pastor. He still has it today, 27 years later. And I went out to try to tell the church. 
But I was obsessed with the move of God. I was obsessed to change the world. So nobody knew me. So when I started traveling in churches, I would come to churches. Nobody knew me, so I didn't have a relationship. I would just come to a town. I'd call a pastor on the phone, look in the phone book under churches, call him up. Say, hey, I'm a minister from Montana. I'm in town. I feel like I'd love to have coffee with you. You got time? And they'd always have coffee with me. Then the Lord would give me a prophetic word, and I'd prophesy to them having coffee or lunch. And they would always say, will you stay and preach? Because the Lord gave me this prophetic gift, so it was easy to get into churches. However, once I got in the church, I was so driven, so passionate to get my message across that I couldn't hold back. And the more I pushed it, what God's going to do, revival's coming. It's pretty soon people's eyes just glaze over. They can't take it. You're too much. And I, that would just make me madder. And I'd start yelling more at them. And I just, oh, no. and there were some times when I just get so frustrated, I took chairs and I threw them across sanctuaries. Don't you people know? Okay. I did all the things you dreamed about but didn't have the guts to do, okay? That's just who I was, okay? I was so driven. This is the real nice me, okay? I used to have hair, okay? This has been a long road, you know, this 27 years. So I could get into church because of prophetic gift, but I could never get back in because I was too forceful. and I just could not relate to people. I was trying to cram it down their throat. Now, I had to, I had to change something. And one of the lessons I had to bring from my past was during my six years of pastoring. During the six years of pastoring, I also became obsessed at one point to press through, to get my church to do something. They started to see me lukewarm for a time. And about three years into pastorate, I started to go, no, I got to push them. We got to do it. We got to take our city for God. Take our city. And I was just becoming more and more forceful, more and more forceful. Well, I had three elders, three men. We met with once a week. And on Tuesday nights on our elders meeting, I would start Come to elders' meeting telling them, you've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. Pretty soon, they just, their eyes would glaze over every time I talked about it. And I could not understand, why are they bumps on the log? I want to change the world. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> it was almost a year, during the third, almost to the fourth year of pastoring, I was so frustrated with these elders, thinking, man... They are bumping along, and every Tuesday meeting, I would continue to tell them, we've got to go for it, but they were like anchors holding me back. Well, I went home after a real frustrating elders meeting, and I was crying out to God, and I felt like God say, die. Now, God, why would you say that? I got passion, and you gave it to me. And I knew God wanted me to die to the very passion that I had. Then I, I read that scripture which says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. See, I had a grain of wheat. I had life from God. It was in me. It was burning in me. But I was by myself. Even the church couldn't quite get my passion. I was too forceful to them. I made a conscious decision. I got to try this. And so what I did is that night after prayer for the elders meeting, I just says, okay, God, I'm going to die to my passion to save my community to now, that might sound totally contrary to a lot of what you guys have been taught. But I can remember the very night I talked to my wife. I think God wants me just to quit and give this up. Well, during that week, it was till next Tuesday I was going to have my elders meeting, I honestly completely put it to death. I came to the elders meeting. This was the first time in almost a year I didn't start the meeting off pushing. We've got to take their city for God. I just sat there. And that was the night where one of the elders started off saying, you know what? 
I think it's time to do what our pastor's been telling us to do all year. We need to wake up and get this city for God. Now, it would have been so much dead in me that I couldn't believe he was saying it. What? The other two pastors, the other two elders then agreed with him. I learned a huge lesson. It says, but if it dies, it will bear much fruit. You see, I can be motivated with all the passion in the world, and people can feed on my energy while I'm present, but when I leave, it's all gone. They don't have it. But, but if I can learn, you know, this passion inside of me, that it also must be subjected. It somehow has to bow. And what I found during that week when I was trying to die, I found out that I have to put my elders above my passion, that I must love them more than I love this vision. The same thing with my wife. I found through the years that if I want to do something, do something, do something, my wife's eyes will glaze over. But if I will die to it, put her above my passion, then my passion gets born in her. There are some people who've gone through life with a drive. It doesn't have to be spiritual. Maybe for business. Maybe for for this career. Maybe for this. And somehow their children and their spouse just kind of can't relate, can't get in. They live a separate life. Not knowing that there is a priority within our heart. But if at some point, maybe it's the man, the head of the home, or the wife's pursuing a career, if at some point they realize, no, my children are more important than this career, and they die to it, somehow something rises inside of the children, and now they're proud that dad or mom have this career. See, unless, unless it dies, it remains by itself alone. And what is it? It's a living thing within you, and the living thing, you got it from God. But how then do I impart it? It's the same thing like sometimes when I'm preaching. I'll be preaching along, and if I get driven too batch, even in the middle of my preaching, people's eyes will glaze over. And years ago, I learned, swallow the vision. And I'll stand up here. Nobody knows I'm doing it. I just say, okay, God, if they don't get what I'm trying to teach, it's okay. I love them more than my message. Sometimes I'll do that right in the middle of my message if I see people yawning or they're turning off. And as soon as I do that, I look back up. They're ready to hear again. Because why? I've decided I love them more than I love the message. I I, I really want to encounter people, and I want to see them a success rather than just me a success in my message. There has to be that change. Now, I, I got this passion when I left my pastor, and I'm on the road ministering, being driven, driven, driven. My wife was constantly always trying to tell me, you got to put people before your passion. And, you know, for about the first four years, I just was not listening. No, 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 no. But I'm, I, I, I'm trying to learn and go through this thing. And, and sometimes God even has to smack people on the head just because God deals with heart issues. We, we see out here, you know, we're, we're trying to advance. We're trying to progress in our career and make money and things like that. And all gets taken away. And we think, God, why would you allow that to do that? God deals in heart issues. When we, in our minds, deal with things out here, and God's dealing with such more important issues that actually govern the course of our life, where we're headed. I found that consistently without my life. Okay, i got to even prioritize within my heart what's here. What is here? See, if I were to open my heart, well, I'm on the road a lot. I'm on the road over half of the year, okay? If, I'm, if I open my heart up to a, to a woman, my wife would know. Don't know how she would know. She would just know. Why? Because she couldn't get access. Somehow she would feel dethroned in my heart. Somehow there was something shifted here. She wouldn't know what's really going on, but something's wrong where I can't talk to my husband the same way I could before. 
Because what is it? This, this commitment to say no, two become one. Therefore, it's not, the, the, the two is not me and my passion. No, it's me and my wife. But then I have this passion. Well, I'm talking then about this heart issue, how powerful this heart is. And I've actually come to think of the heart as, as a doorway into the next dimension. Now, when I give this picture, I don't mean to present it to you as this is exactly how it happens. Maybe you should take this as a parable. I'm not sure. But if, if I were to have a whiteboard right up here in front of the stage, and if I draw a straight line, that straight line is called one dimension. If I'm only thinking what's on a straight line, put dots on the line, that's thinking in one dimension. Two dimensions is the entire whiteboard. And so I could draw a figure of the head and stick, stick figure, and that's a two-dimensional being. He only exists in two dimensions. Three dimensions, most of us know, that's where there's depth to it. So I couldn't do it on a whiteboard. But now, let's imagine you and I exist just in a two-dimensional world. We're like a stick figure on this whiteboard, all of us. Now, if I'm standing behind the whiteboard, you couldn't see me because you're in your two-dimensional world. But I took my finger and I push it into the whiteboard. Okay, right where my finger crosses the whiteboard, being a two-dimensional being, you could see the cross-section of my finger. Couldn't see the whole finger. You would just see the part that's going through this two-dimension. You go, whoa, what is that? Something's stuck into this world. I like to think of the spiritual dimension as another dimension, like geometrically. That, yes, we live in a three-dimensional world. If I just think of another dimension, therefore, there could be an angel right here, but we couldn't see it. But if it just pressed into our dimension, if it just pushed its face into our world, what? we'd go, whoa, a face just came out of nowhere. If it just, what? Or if it pushed its finger in our dimension, it's in one more dimension. So I'm presenting this as a parable, but I think this way about the spiritual world. I understand that the heart is the avenue by which we reach into that dimension. If you love someone in that dimension, you're attached to them. You will many times experience similar things that they experience when your heart is attached to a person. If you receive something from God, sometimes they will receive the same thing you're receiving. Because you have them in your heart, somehow they experience what you experience. And when you love them, there's a love going. And it's not just Christians. I think grandma who has the pictures of the grandkids among the mantle, I think she's releasing love to those kids. I think it's the way God created us. We are not created just as, as you know, physical beings. We are created with a spiritual element, another dimension to our being. And the heart is the doorway for that. And when you and I attach in the realm of the spirit to another person, there is a real attachment there. Somehow, you will end up doing similar things. Sometimes, you can end up meeting them in the most unexpected places. On the other hand, if you had a relationship and you broke relationship with them, something happened, sometimes you can be living in the same town, but once the relationship is broken, you just don't run across them anymore. You go, how did that happen? There is real things in that dimension that connect and disconnect. I, I, I say, okay, then what should I have in my heart? Well, I want to have in my heart that which God wants. First of all, I'm one with my wife. I have God and my wife here. I have my three children. I've got three children, okay? Joshua, Amy, and Peter. I think I shared with you once, you know, how they're all out on their own. And I I shared with you when Josh left home, our oldest boy. Linda, my wife, she cried for two weeks. Then my daughter left home, and I cried for two weeks. Then our youngest boy left home, and we both celebrated for two weeks, okay? (laughs) Yeah, that was... That's how it was, okay? Not that we, you know, it's just when when the house is finally empty, you get an entirely different perspective of life, okay? I mean, we loved him, totally. But then after about two weeks when he was gone, all of a sudden the house was empty. We think, God, sure is quiet here. But for about two weeks, 
The house was clean. Okay, For the first time in 24 years, the house was clean. And in particular, this youngest one, he just destroyed the house. I don't know. The other two were spotless. Their bedrooms were clean. But, you know, when we prayed around the table, the three kids... They hated to sit next to him because they had to grab his hands for prayer. They would hold like this to, to Peter, okay? Because that's who Peter was. He was the dirty one, the messy one, okay? They'd hold his hands like this, okay? And then we'd have to say the prayer. Peter would come home after school every day and trash the kitchen. doesn't matter how many times we'd send him back into the kitchen to clean it. Every time he'd come home from school, high school especially, trash the kitchen, then go do what he was. That's just who he was. The other two, spotless, perfect clean. Now, we did a lot of different things during our years of raising. Because we were on the road traveling, for part of the time, we homeschooled them, and we we didn't even own a home. We just stayed on the road traveling different countries, and we did that as a family. Other times, we came back, and then we put them in public school for a while. Some of them we homeschooled. We we had each child we dealt with differently, okay? So they experienced the whole gamut, homeschooled, on the road, to wherever it was. And it was a great thing. But in our Kids are so incredible on how much parents learn by kids. And a lot of these lessons are not easy. I don't know, you know, how you can understand God's love until you've had kids. You know, I know that God shows love to everybody. But there's a certain aspect of God's love you learn in the midst of raising kids. that You think, man, God, do you really love me like this? I mean, here's Peter. Um... Peter was the one we always worried about, okay? We send him to school, and I was just hoping that he would pass each year, okay? Josh got straight A's. Amy got straight A's. You know, sometimes they get a B. But Peter, I'd go talk to his teachers hoping he wouldn't get an F, okay? What does he have to do to pass this quarter, okay? Peter was just that way. Now, in high school, Peter is the one that organized the fight club after school, okay? He's the one that got everybody betting and had the cameras, okay? He's the one that trained to be a cage fighter, okay? That's who Peter is, okay? Peter's the one that got kicked out twice in school, okay? Just for little things. But I'm a traveling minister. I'm supposed to be known for having good kids. And I got Peter. <laughs> Joshua's perfect. Amy's perfect. Peter's. Ah! This is who he is. Now, he continues to grow up, okay? And he would always just do crazy things wherever we are, okay? I'm just wondering, you know, when I'm at this church, you know, he's going to go stay with a family somewhere during the evening meetings. Bless you. Okay? Peter, Peter, Peter. Now, I started taking my kids overseas when they were 14. For their 14th birthday, we decided each one of them would go to Africa. Now, they'd been to other countries, but Africa is a pretty needy place, so that's the age we felt they were ready to experience third-world conditions. Um, I took Josh to South Africa. We spent three weeks out in the villages. We were way out in the villages where there's just, you know, mud huts, round huts, grass roofs, you know, and they take fresh cow manure, put it on the floor every time they have a guest. It's a Osa tribe that clicks in their languages. It was a radical experience, especially for Joshua. There's just poverty that you can't imagine. When, when Joshua got home, for two years he wouldn't sleep in his bed. He's a real sensitive child. And, and he, he just sees people who have nothing. He didn't feel worthy to sleep in his bed for two years. For over two years, he said, I just can't do it. You see, almost half the world doesn't have beds to sleep in. 
You know, it just you come to realize what world's out there and you come home and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to be over there and then come back and walk through a grocery store. Sometimes it's hard to, when you first get home, to spend, you know, $50 on a meal when you know that's more than a month wages for one of our pastors. It's really hard to come back. Well, for Joshua, he's a real sensitive boy, and it just crushed him. And he would often, you know, cry at night after we got home just for the people over there. Now, so when I took Amy when she was 14, Amy's 26 now, and she's married happily. And, and, and I took Amy when she was 14. She went to Kenya first with me, and then to Uganda. Well, we would go, and every time we would eat a meal, we're eating in a restaurant, but when we go out in the villages, but she didn't feel like she could eat because she would wait for all of us to finish the table. Whoever's with me, usually pastors in the countries, she'd gather all their plates, and then she'd run outside and feed the orphans and the street children who have no homes. She did that every meal. She, was a, she really didn't dare eat. She was just crying. She'd eat at the table, but she'd cry and she couldn't finish her food, and she just hoped, and she'd ask, Dad, could I go? And she'd run outside, and she'd just be feeding street kids. And I'd have to come out afterwards and pull her out of just, you know, kids all over, as far as you can see, would come. Um, and that's where she loved. Now, Peter, and I took Peter when he turned 14. So we started in Kenya with Peter, too. Now, in Kenya, I've got quite a few pastors that look to me. So I was doing a leadership conference. We had about 900 church leaders. We have a, a church, a school building we rented. Now it's not like his. We have dirt floor school building, but it's much bigger than this room. We got, it's filled with leaders and, and it's a school facility with dirt floors, no glass in the windows, just, you know, holes, but it's still a facility way out in remote regions. And I'm teaching, I think it was three nights in a row, all day, but three nights in a row. By the third night, Peter's getting bored and I could, you know, it's, <laughs> he survived this long. It was amazing. Peter said, dad, can I go teach the kids? Oh, God, help. Okay, now, Joshua has preached with me in many countries, okay? Joshua, all those years, was traveling, preaching. He, sometimes he preached to the youth. Sometimes he'd be right up here with me. Joshua, that's his heart. He, he, it's who, who he's always been. Since he was about this high, he was just, you know, a minister. And I, I always saw him as taking over the ministry, and he went to a lot of countries with me. But Peter... This was the first time Peter asked to teach. Now, there's no kids here, but there's thousands of kids out there outside our building. Okay, it's just villages. So I talked to the leaders, said, you know, Peter wants to teach the kids. And can he use the school cafeteria? And I'm risking a lot, okay? But I got to do this. So the leader gets, yeah, gets the cafeteria, you know, organized for the next evening meeting. Peter's going to be over there. They yell, send out the word. It's just transmitted by word of mouth. And then there's going to be lots of kids in there. I have no idea. Maybe there was a thousand kids in there or so. I know I wasn't in there. I was in the evening meeting. I've got my 900 or so church leaders. I'm teaching. I'm up on a stage. There's one aisle down the middle, but the rest is solid packed, standing room only against the walls. One aisle down the middle kept open. And I'm right in the middle. We've done worship. Peter's over there teaching. I don't know what. I'm just, oh, God, help him. Okay. I'm teaching the evening meeting, going for it. Halfway through the evening message, Peter comes in the back door, right through, I'm speaking up here. Look, I'm the only one to see him first. Oh, no. He comes in the door, and there's a whole army of kids following him. Now, he's the only whitehead, okay? He runs, walks right, and he's got his arm around one boy, and he walks right up, but there's all kinds of kids behind him. They walk right down the back, and then right up the middle. Nice stop. Peter, what is it? He says, Dad, he was a mute, now he speaks. 
Here comes up the village mute, never spoken before, reads from the Bible. Everybody knew he was a village mute, so the whole place goes wild. Why does God use Peter? I had prayed three nights over the leaders. I hadn't seen one miracle. Not in that session. Peter. Why does God do it to Peter? And we went to Germany. Peter and I. And we're in Germany. And I, I told my background's German. And my father has 12 brothers. All of them are bald, okay? I grew up, all my uncles being bald. I thought all Germans were bald, okay? That's just how I grew up. So the first time I'm in Germany, you know, I looked out there. They all have hair. And I was shocked. And I actually told them. I told them, you know, my dad's German. I thought all you guys were bald. You know, I came back to the second meeting in Germany. They had all bought those bald hats and they put them on. They all came to the meeting with bald hats. Every man in the place, okay? Felt real at home, okay? But what happened in the meeting is before I got up and preached, they, um, the pastor got up and announced that uh, a young boy, 16-year-old boy, member of the church, the family's member of the church, that he was diagnosed with cancer was only given a couple weeks to live. And he announced that. Well, then I came up. Peter was next to me and sitting there and before I'm called up, and he started crying. He'd met that kid. And then I come up here, and I look at Peter's eyes all watery, and I can't talk. And I just say, you know, I can't talk. Can we just pray? Peter came up and just hugged me, and we fell on the floor, and we just cried. And we cried, and we cried, and we cried, and we cried, and we cried. The whole church just sat there and watched us. They were praying, but we never did get the message. Finally, it was probably 40 minutes. We got up and left. That 16-year-old boy's finished university. He's getting married now. He got healed. Why does God use Peter? Really bugs me. There's nothing about God that makes sense. Not the kind of sense that I want him to make. Now, I'm still trying to bring you up to this place where I'm trying to get us to. We keep our heart open. Sometimes you will have a child who maybe is doing bad, rebelling, and you can start entertaining thoughts. They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. And as long as they're just thoughts up here, it's okay. But when they drop down here, then you've lost faith. Then they have came out of your heart, and you can no longer be confident God's at work in them. In fact, I think sometimes Satan actually puts bad thoughts in a parent's mind, telling them, your child's not going to make it, your child's not going to make it, your child's not going to make it. And you don't know it's Satan's thoughts, but he's putting those thoughts in. But if you come into agreement with them, and someday you say, he's not going to make it. I think right there you've agreed with the enemy, and what you've did is you've given the enemy permission to go attack your child. Because the parent has authority, and, the, and Satan has to ask permission to sift like wheat the child before they have full access. That's why when Satan came to Jesus, Jesus said to Peter, Satan's demand to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you so that your faith fail you not. See, before Satan could destroy Peter, he had to ask Jesus' permission. There's something about that. You remember when, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about the immoral man in the church. And he says that immoral man was destroying the church. But he says, even though I'm absent from body, I'm going to judge him. And the word judge is I'm going to push him out of my heart so that Satan can destroy him. Paul, being the father of that church, had some kind of level of authority where indeed, if he 
kept the Corinthians in his church, he's confident God's at work in them. On the other hand, if something was pushed out, there is something in the other dimension that does respond to the hearts of us who have been given authority. There is something about parents, about teachers in classrooms. There's something about a businessman who has a business. There's people who have authority. There's something real that if you hold authority in your heart, you believe it, that you're releasing grace. You're releasing good things to that which you believe. On the other hand, when you stop believing for it, somehow those things crumble. It's just real. This is how this world works. And, and, and when you realize that as a parent, you come to say, no, I will never give up faith for my child. I will never give up for my faith for my child, no matter what happens. Well, greatest trial of my life came with my kids. And this is where I'm trying to work you up to. Um, greatest trial of Linda's in my life we have our oldest, Joshua's 32, Amy's 26, and Peter's 24, 25, I forget. Peter's successful. He lives in Pittsburgh. He's engaged, and he's a prosperous businessman. Couldn't, barely got him through high school, but he makes more money than all of us. Okay? That's who he is. Yeah. Amy's happily married. She's a, a nanny on the side to a very wealthy family. She's, they're just happy. Joshua's the one that I always thought would preach with me. And he's the one that I thought would, um, you know, stay with me on the road, maybe take over the ministry someday. Because he did preach for a lot of years. And he went off after he was at a university. He also trained to be an intern. He was an intern at a church. Um, he was interning, and he was the evangelist of the church. And he's a very aggressive, very successful evangelist. People on the streets, just goes on the streets, wins their souls. Uh, he, he liked to hold signs in the worst parts of town and then get crowds of people around him. His favorite sign, this might be hard for you to relate to, okay? Just give it a break. His favorite sign down in the rough section is Jesus farted. Okay, okay now, you might not be relate to that. But he would preach to crowds of people about how Jesus took on human nature, and he was a human just like you and me. God took on our nature, and he's won more souls than probably any of you. I mean, you just can't. Well, something that works, you've got to be careful about criticizing, okay? And it probably would not be a way to reach you, but the kind of people he was reaching, it worked, okay? It worked, okay? Well, Josh got hurt real bad in this church. And he was kind of their evangelist, and he brought these people in, and something real bad happened. Well, Josh pulled away and didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do, his dad. Uh, we, you know, I thought we'd always been real close, but he just couldn't talk about it. Kind of disappeared, you know. He was in another town, that town where he had been associate pastor, uh, intern pastor. Um, and just kind of, you know, call once a week. But it was getting more distance. And this was about a four-year period. Um, he'd always be home at Christmas, Thanksgiving. We'd talk at least once a week. But... We know he wasn't going to church. We know he just disillusioned with everything. Well, he moved to New York, Ithaca, New York, uh, probably five years ago now. And he continued, and he's a psychotherapist now, but uh, we go out there. I'm always on the road, so I can stop in like four times a year. Just when I'm, I stop in when I'm there. Well, Lynn and I went out there uh, two years ago, and he got us um, to have dinner. He says, Mom and Dad, i got to tell you something. He said, I'm gay. 
I've been hiding it from you for four years. And my partner and I have been living together. But I've been afraid to tell you. Now, that was a real hard day. Um, because here I am, I'm a minister, I'm up front. People watch Josh, they watch me. And there's people all over who know Josh. And Josh has been with this partner for five years now. And we talk about God. He says he's at peace with God. I read the Bible. I know the scriptures. And I've, I've read all the books I can read. Christians who write pro-support of the gays. Christians who write against the support. And God does some tricks on me now that, you know, I was speaking at a church in Ohio. A pastor that I know rented a church building. And he had all his pastors, a network of pastors come together. And he just rented this church building in Ohio. And so I taught for two days, all the pastors. And it ended at Wednesday at noon. But the pastor owned the building say, we stay and preach tonight, the Wednesday night service. And I said, sure. Well, it turned out Wednesday night it was a gay church. Here I am standing up front. All these people are gay. Oh, God. God's done quite a few of them tricks on me. Like I said, he's not fair. He's not rational. I say that, you know, funny. Please realize God knows exactly what he's doing. I, my wife and I are trying to figure life out. And I'm a person who can't sleep at night until I've connected all the dots. So I've studied and I've done everything, you know, read it again and again. It's the one thing I, I can't figure out. Something I can't understand. It, for the first year, it was really hard. Because first of all, the hardest thing of the whole issue wasn't even that I couldn't understand what was going on. It wasn't even that God didn't prepare me. What was hardest is realizing I had spent all those years with my son, and he had dealt with those desires since he was 11 years old, and he could never tell me that he had those desires. Because I was always super Christian, and he knew he shouldn't have those desires, but he had them since he was 11. I thought we were just focused. I thought we were just serving God, and therefore he wasn't going to think about a woman. I thought we were so focused on serving God together that that's why he was just doing what I do. We just keep on serving God. We don't think about things to sidetrack us. That's what I thought was happening. Turns out he never had a thought about a woman because that wasn't in his nature. The hardest thing was realizing that he could not talk to me, and for all those years, I was not a dad who let him, was the kind of dad who he could come and talk to about something like that. That was the hardest. It wasn't even realizing it was gay. It was realizing that I had failed my son in becoming the kind that, you know, he knew he could not talk to me because of who I am. Now, he's there. And I, I, I've become comfortable with confusion. I can't resolve it in Scripture. I cannot resolve it. What, what do I do? Well, I know what to do. I keep him in my heart. I don't know what to do with my head, but I know what to do with my heart. Come on, man. Wow. That's right. Go ahead. That's right. And I've settled this issue. First year, you know, fighting a lot in me, but now it's been this time. And, and I love the guy he's with. I wish he'd married my daughter. But I got things to deal with, you know. They're coming home again this summer. 
places to stay, who to introduce them to. I had to talk to my home church about it because my son was kind of the the evangelist of my home church. He discipled a lot of our youth people. We have about 2,000 in our home church, and, and he was the star you know, the model kid that every, everybody wanted their kid to be around my kid. And so I had to talk to my home church because Josh is coming home. And he's bringing his partner with him. I don't know what to do with my head. I, I know doctrine. I know theology. I love connecting all the dots. But I've come to believe life is not near as simple as we, we try to make it. I, I come... Working with people, uh, people are messed up. People have come through incredible things. There's people who've gone through divorces, they've been abused, people who fight mental insanity, people fight sicknesses. Life is just not near as simple as I years ago thought it was. People have issues. And, and, you know, I've come to, I think everyone's tweaked somehow. I think every one of you are tweaked. Okay? That's right. But I've become more comfortable with it. I think God's comfortable with it. I can't understand it. You wouldn't understand my tweaked elements. But I think everybody's tweaked. I don't know that anybody exists that doesn't have some flaws and has some serious things in their background that which they've had to deal with. And life is a whole lot more complicated. But so I got this simple thing, though. I'm going to love people, I'm going to keep them in my heart. I'm not going to push people out of my heart. I'm not going to push gays out of my heart. I don't understand it. I, I can't get a biblical justification for it, but I don't have to. I know what to do. And I know that gays won't hear me unless I learn how to love them. So when I shared with my home church, just so happened to be the, the head of the local gay and lesbian community was at church that Sunday. So she came and asked me to speak at the gay and lesbian convention I get set up all the time now (laughs) and then what happened was our church is you know good size so not everybody knows everybody so our pastor was asked to dedicate a baby a a woman came in and said we dedicate my child and he agreed to do it on a Sunday morning because we're going to dedicate a couple other babies but he didn't know know this lady turned out this lady was gay so she was all excited yes and didn't tell pastor and the senior pastor is real close with me, okay? And all of a sudden, not only did she come with her partner, but she invited all of the gay community to come witness the, the dedication of her child. So Sunday morning, we had two front rows of the church were all gays. Linda, I wasn't there that Sunday. Linda was there. She was in the next row behind it. And when it was really intense, they're all holding hands, arms around each other, things like that in the front of the church, and it's a big building, okay? Well, sitting next to my wife was this very traditional Christian woman, and she was just gritted her teeth like this. She was sitting next to my wife. My wife describes this, and she turned over to my wife and says, I despise this. I hate this. My wife put my arm around her and said, you know what? I think this is the best Sunday we've ever had. If God's going to move, it's going to be this Sunday. This is where God's love comes. That lady just melted started seeing them differently. There was one man in all the gays, young man, uh, Matthew's his name. He was a street prostitute. He was addicted, but he came. He was among them. My wife went up and connected, talked with him, invited him to lunch, found out that he didn't have a home. 
So guess what? My wife brought him home. <laughs> so I came go home. Guess who's living upstairs? Matthew. So first she helped him get off the, uh, you know, the drugs, did it clean out up in her bedroom upstairs, the room that used to be Josh's. And she helped him get a job. Then she helped him get in college. He graduated valedictorian from the college, got a full ride scholarship to medical school. And then I came home another time, and there's another gay young man up my son's room. Now he's pastoring the church. Stuff I don't understand, but I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to love people. I'm supposed to keep my heart open. And I'm going to keep people in my heart. You just can't let them go. You can't let them go. I'm confident God's at work in them. I know I can still talk to them because I love them. There's still things I can't understand. And, and please, if you have it all figured out, I don't want to hear. I'm sorry. I've, I've thought it all. I've been told enough why it happened, what happens. I've been told enough. You know, I love you with your thoughts. Um, but I just want to keep loving. That's where, where I'm at. Um, I have fought so deeply trying to figure out what we did wrong, what we did right, like every other parent does with their kids after the kids leave home. I don't have answers. I don't have answers for your kids. But I know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to hold them in your heart. And anything you love, you can be confident God's at work. That's my message. I'm sticking to it. I don't feel like I'm supposed to say anything else, Pastor. Wow. Can we just put on some worship and uh, say la? Is that all right? Can we do that? Or if you want to come up, Chris, and play, either way, just put it. I want you to just, just receive the Father's love. Open your heart to his love. God, teach us to love like you. Come and wreck us so you can rebuild us. To be refuge, cities of refuge for the broken. The one who has saved me from death. I want to open the altars. He is if you feel like you need to repent for not loving, just come. Good. Just fill this altar up. He is
want your heart, Jesus. You ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. You broke bread with them. You didn't discount them. You included them. You included them. The gospel is inclusive of every person on the planet. children back in your heart. Believe for them again. There's some parents with prodigal sons and daughters. Prodigal children. This is your moment. to lift up the name of Jesus, Yahshua, the Hebrew name. Sing it out.
is working on our hearts, God. if you would, just bring them up. And uh, if I could have one of you watch them and just put them up here. As we are all in an attitude of worship, those of you that want to give to the conference, our priority is to bless the prophets that have come. We're going to do that, but I want to dismiss you and we're going to continue to play worship, but I want to say this one thing. As you give, go as you give give as you go, but I want to say this one thing. Those that responded to the altar call, and maybe there's some more as we have a time to linger. Maybe there's more that maybe you couldn't get out of your chair because of pride, or maybe you couldn't get out of your chair because theologically you, uh, your framework was messed up. But maybe you need to respond for this right here and just say, Father, Teach me how to love the way you do. Just that, just right there. Maybe before you leave, if you could just come and spend a moment up here, just, and I'm not, and if you don't want to, that's okay. I don't, and it doesn't mean that you're, you're wrong for not, but maybe just as a prophetic act as a church, we could say, God, we really, do we really look in the harvest and see these these, you know, if you look at like a wheat harvest, it, it's very plain. My grandfather was a, a farmer and he has thousands of acres. If you just look out, it's just plain. But God sees it as so valuable. Lord, open our eyes. I had a message planned to preach last week about the spirit of compassion, about how we're blind. We're confined in how God wants to redefine the way his love is. His love cleanses. His love, we don't have to be so, you know, like concerned, like, oh, I'm going to get defiled. God's love is pure and it flows through us. It's streams of life that purify people around us. And I want to just ask you, if you feel like, you know what, I want to see people the way you see them, Father. I want to dismiss you. And those that want to give, please come. But I want to open the altars again. And I want to ask you, actually, if you're sitting, just stand. Some of you, if you want to stand with me. Lord, I bless your people. I bless every guest. Thank you for this great word to rearrange, to change, to teach us about the heart and to teach us about love. We thank you for an awesome time tonight at six. We thank you for what you're just going to continue to do. But Lord, we bless your people, and I just thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be dismissed. I think there are some others that want to come. You want to come up here? Just come and just burn, just soak, just stay, just remain, just pray. 
We love you. God bless you. Yeah.